last place so long ago Embedded in our soul And etched in our hearts Memories taken us back This is Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land and your host, Mary Swander. This episode, we're back at the Mount Vernon, Iowa Farmer's Market with farmers telling their own stories. In the background, you'll hear the Mississippi String Band playing Hill Country. Our first storyteller is Susan Aram, who is the executive director of SILT, a land trust in Iowa that's preserving farmland. And she'll tell you how she first became involved in farming. Day by day, but the memories always stay. The first time I ever learned anything from farmers was in the mid-1980s. I had moved from upstate New York, where I was raised, to go to the University of Iowa, get a degree in journalism and English, and I promptly graduated in 1985 and was completely and utterly unemployed. A couple years later, I find myself in with a bunch of rabble-rousers called Citizens for Community Improvement. And I'm learning something about this farm crisis that I've been reading about in the newspapers and seeing on, seeing on the TV. And the folks at CCI wanted to pull together a bunch of farmers and, and give it to some of their elected officials. So we pulled some folks together. And by the time we showed up at this place, there were two, 300 farmers in this room. And there were these two suits up front a representative from Senator Grassley's office and a representative from Senator Harkin's office. And these folks were mad. They had these folding chairs like we got here. They're so uncomfortable. You really need to have better chairs when you're gonna have an angry crowd. <laughs> and, uh, and folks were milling about, men and women. And, uh, and I felt really out of my element because I didn't know anything about farming and I didn't know much about what was going on with this farm crisis, just seemed wrong. So I stood in the back with a couple of big guys around me. And I tried to be a little invisible and listen and learn. And there was this woman up in the corner. She got up first and she said to these folks up front, I wanna know why you're running me off my land. And the young men up front said, we don't understand what you mean, ma'am. And she said, you running me off my land. She said, we got 160 acres. We could sell 120 of them and all our cattle. We could keep 40 and the house my grandmother was born in. But the bank won't take our money. They says we got to go. All of it. No matter how much money we could come up with to pay that note, we got to go. And I want to know why you're doing this. Well, who else was she going to ask, right? So she sits down. And of course, they didn't have an answer. And this other guy over here stands up. He says, I want to know why you're running me off my land, too. And the fellow says, I don't understand, sir. Tell me what you're, what you're talking about. He says, three times in the last week, my son goes out to the mailbox, and there's beehive in there, and those bees are stinging him when he goes in there to get the mail because he doesn't realize there's going to be bees in the mailbox. He I lived here all my life. I know the bees don't show up. I know when there's bees in my mailbox. No, these are getting put there. Of course, the folks up front think, this guy's losing it, right? But... Another guy over there, he says, no, I know what he's talking about. Because for the last few weeks, somebody's been throwing cow dung up on my front porch. 
And my wife's out there shoveling it off there every day and hosing it down. These people are running us off our land. My neighbor, who's got more land than he'll ever need, wants us out of the way. Now, of course, at the time, it was easy to say, ah, oh, folks, really, these things are not related. You know, we know you got your troubles, but there's really nothing we can do for you. We represent Senator Harkin and Senator Grassley, and we really don't, we can't do much about neighbor relations or what's going on with your bank. And now, by now, my, my blood was up and I was shaken. I was so angry by hearing these stories that I raised my hand in the back up like this and the guy tried to ignore me, called on some other people, but it wasn't getting any better. So we finally called on the girl who didn't look like she belonged there. I said, could you tell me why Senator Harkin took his name off the Harkin Gephardt Save the Family Farm Bill? And the whole room went, oh, because nobody had heard it. And then, of course, I was terrified. I thought, oh, maybe I read it wrong in the paper this morning. But they still had papers. They were in paper. And I was reading it that morning. And then the guy looked kind of shook up, the Harkin guy. And he said, well, I, I, and he blithered something. And he called on somebody else. And then this fellow who never met me over there in the, in the corner, he says, no, answer the girl's question. And he, he calls on somebody else. And then that lady, she says, no, answer that girl's question. We want to know. And then a third person, and then a bunch of people start saying, answer that girl's question. And that man did. He had to say, I don't know what's going on with that. I will get back to you. By the end of the time, he had to own up to the fact that Senator Harkin had taken his name off of that bill. And I think I fell in love with Iowa that day. And I learned more from those farmers that day than I've ever learned in my whole life because I learned that a group of people who never even met me and had no idea who I was and maybe didn't even know each other because it was a pretty big meeting could stand up and say the same thing together and make something happen, hold somebody accountable. And I went on to be a union organizer and I learned how to do that in the workplace so that janitors, black and Latino janitors, and I will tell you they are some of the most invisible people in the world, could stand up and make something happen, could gain respect from their boss. And then years later, I finally got back to Iowa. It took a while. I was trying all this time. And 30 years later, 2017, I'm out there in my orchard. I'm growing Asian pears and honeyberries and, and elderberries and Japanese heartnut, all kinds of stuff you all never heard of. But trust me, it's going to pay someday. And where did I learn it from? I learned it from the farmers, right? But the other thing I learned was when my husband and I decided we were gonna to try to buy a farm for a young farmer and he'd pay us back in a few years and everything would be copacetic and we could do it again for some other farmer, that, well, that wasn't gonna work. That wasn't gonna change anything. That one person or a couple of people who happened to have some means after all these years, helping one other person or a couple of people every five years, I wasn't gonna change a thing. And those farmers from 1987 came back to me again and they said, you gotta bring people together you got to get people you haven't met yet, people you're uncomfortable with, people who aren't like you, and you got to get them together to stop this farm crisis. And that's what we did with Silt. And we're feeling really good about it. So thank you very much. Take me back in time. Walk with me to the looking glass. Remember with me, days gone past, slipping away day by day.
Our next farmer storyteller is Laura Kraus. She was one of the first people to set up a CSA in the state of Iowa, and she is notorious for all of her endeavors in sustainable agriculture. Here, Laura is telling us about her challenges in this growing season in the time of climate change. Some of you know how reluctant I am about this. Now you all know. So um, many of you know me because you know, and you know that I raise vegetables. And um, I, raise, I raise quite a few vegetables for quite a few people, and I've been doing it for about 30 years. So I'm starting to get the hang of it. Um, and I try to make sure that I have some vegetables to sell to somebody at least eight months of the year. So starting in about April and going till December, I try to make sure that there's something on my farm that somebody would want to eat. So one of the ways I manage to sell those vegetables is through a, a marketing model called CSA, or Community Supported Agriculture. And that's where people buy a share of the farm's production at the start of the season, and then they come every week during this, the growing season, the primary growing season, and they pick up their share of what the garden produced that week. And some of you were at my farm today, in fact. We had pickup tonight until 6 o'clock. So I know, I've known many, many CSA members over the years. We've, I've been doing it for, I think, 28 years. And what I know about CSA members is that they really make a decision that they want to eat locally. They're very committed to eating locally, and they put their money down up front, actually, in fact. But the thing about eating locally is that you are also committing to eat seasonally. And so that's something that's a little bit more unusual for us to think about, about eating seasonally. And I'm going to add to that that eating seasonally is often quite dependent on what happened in the weather two months ago. So it's a hard story to, to sell when it's so difficult for us to keep track of what happened in the past that could affect this seasonal eating. But CSA customers learn quickly about seasonality, and what they learn is that there's a flow sort of throughout the year, and this flow basically follows the life cycle of a plant. So when the ground thaws in the spring, the sun gets higher in the sky and the earth gets warm, seeds that are in the ground, particularly seeds of annual plants, those are plants that only live one year, and that's what a lot of our food crops are annuals, garden plants. So seeds of annual plants, as soon as they get that trigger that is warm enough, they start to grow, right? And when they start to grow, the first thing that happens is that their root comes out of the ground, out of the seed and into the ground, and that root anchors itself in the soil. And as soon as that plant is happy with that situation and is able to get enough nutrients from the soil, then it starts to grow the next part of its body, which is stems and leaves, okay? And so stems and leaves are the above-ground parts, and they can only happen once the below-ground parts have had a chance to get fully established. The plant has to have those above-ground parts because that's how it captures sun energy to make food for itself so it can grow and get bigger and make food for its babies. So the plant has this job to do to develop all this green tissue 
what we call leaves to do photosynthesis. And if you're really hungry for something in the spring, like April, probably what you're going to eat is leaves. So, because there aren't other things, right? Unless you, you could eat roots, you could eat radishes, but you're also probably going to eat spinach, maybe, or Swiss chard, or arugula. What else do we have early in the spring? Huh? Kale. Oh, yeah, always kale. Yeah. Okay. So, so then after the leaves are fully established, then the plant does the next thing in its life cycle, which is to make flowers, which then make fruits and seeds. And those are the things that we really, really like. Like, I know there's some people in this room who hesitate when they have a lot of leaves to eat. And I'm looking right at you. But all of us like the rest of the part, the rest of the stage of plant growth in the plant, which is the fruits and the seeds. So that's the sweet corn and the watermelons and the green beans and the zucchinis and the eggplants and all that other stuff that comes later on in the life of the plant. So if you live in Iowa and you want to eat fruits and seeds, you have to wait till summer. It's just that simple. And so you might join a CSA and think you're going to have sweet corn, you know, and and you are, but you're going to have it in August because that's when the plant can actually make it. So CSA members learn that after a while. Um, and, they, and I think there are benefits to learning to eat seasonally. And one is that you learn to anticipate what's going to be really, really good. So, you know, in about two weeks, there's going to be sweet corn around here and it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be nothing like that sweet corn at the high V, which, by the way, isn't that bad, but Ours is going to be better. So we all, we all wait for that, right? Or early in spring, you're waiting for that straw, those strawberries to come out because those local strawberries are like night and day a zillion times better than the ones from the store. So eating seasonally teaches us to wait for something that's really good and then to take advantage of it at the time that it's available. It also makes more environmental sense because it takes far fewer inputs, most of which are involved petroleum in some form, to get them to you if you can grow it at the time that it most likely wants to grow. Um, and then certainly it, they taste the best. So um, I have these little white salad turnips that we grow. People really like. We planted them in March and we harvested them in June and they were awesome. We had the first week of June for the CSA and they were so good I decided to plant them again. So I planted them the first week in June and we harvested last week and a guy came in tonight and he goes, what was the matter with those turnips? Were those like completely different than those ones you gave us before? No, those were exactly the same turnips at the wrong time of year. So <laughs> we, we learn that things taste the best when they're at their best, at their best season. So my job is to grow food no matter what the weather is like, to make sure that everybody's happy with the food in their share as much as possible, to educate them about the seasonality of the food, and somewhat about the weather, and to not sound like a grumpy old farmer in the course of explaining all this. So, weather can mess us up. And I'm just gonna give you an example. This, hap this happened yesterday, and Mary, somebody said I changed my story because literally this happened yesterday. I'm like, that's what I gotta talk about. Okay, so it's about onions. You get one shot at onions. You plant them the the 6th of February, you plant the seeds inside the hoop house because that's the first day that the day length is longer than 10 hours. So you gotta have at least 10 hours of sunshine in order to get something to happen, to be warm enough and have enough sunlight to make plants grow. So February 6th, okay, so you have to get them as big as possible by the time they go into the field, which is usually about the 20th of April. 
And then they have to grow like crazy because on June 23rd, when the days go from the longest possible day to five minutes shorter, the night is five minutes longer, onions know what day of the year it is, and they stop growing leaves and start bulbing out their bulbs. So you want to have the maximum amount of plant growth at the top so you can get a great big onion when you harvest them. And the old farmer rule is you got to have them out of the ground by July 25th. No, no August sun on onions is, how, is the rule. Okay, so February 6th, that's when we, or February 6th is when we'd like to start. So this year, it was too cold. I took these notes out of my book. I, I got out my, note, my farm notebook and copied this down because I couldn't believe it. Um, okay, so on February 23rd, it was finally warm enough that I could seed in the hoop house, but it was still very, very cold. Um, but I had them on a heated table. Okay, so that's February 23rd. March 28th, so what's that? Six weeks later, here's my quote. Been very cold, 18 degrees at night. <laughs> okay, here's April 19th, four weeks later. Quote. Rain for two days, cold and windy, preparing for snow, 25 degrees. <laughs> Remember, we're trying to grow these guys, right? We have the sun, but we're lacking something, lacking a little heat. Okay, that was April, April 20th. This is the day we like to plant onions. Quote, very cold, below 20. So, Jamie, it was a nightmare. I'm telling you, it, goes, it gets worse. Okay, April 22, you know what that is? It's Earth Day, right? So we're going to celebrate Earth Day. We're planting these onions no matter what. Earth Day, planted onions, too cold to set up the irrigation pump. Two days later, April 24th, very windy, sunny, and cold. Two days after that, April 26th, very windy, very hot, very dry, 80 degrees, 30 mile per hour wind. April 27th, next day, hot, windy, very dry, 85 degrees. So these poor guys, I mean, when you plant them, they're like, it's like you planted string to start with, and then they have to live through this. So by May 3rd, it did actually rain an inch. On May 9th, all I wrote was very cold. I think it did not freeze that night, but I think we were ready for it, and I think in some low spots it did. May 14th, it finally rained for 15 days. <laughs> June 10th, <laughs> very hot and dry. June 17th, very hot and dry. June 20th, rain. And then July 6th, so on Monday, Harvest onions. We started harvesting the onions. Okay, and I want to show you what they are, what they look like. So the weather won this round. The problem is the people who got their CSA share today got this. And there is no way I can explain this to them in a newsletter. All they know is, you know, Laura's onions. I have on occasion grown a decent onion. A, an onion that's the size of a hamburger bun is kind of my life's goal. And so on occasion it does happen, but not this year. Um, so I guess what I'd like to say is that um, thankfully my CSA members are gracious, resilient, kind people who believe everything I say and will eat what I give them.
and I love that. Um, and I couldn't be here right now if it wasn't for all of them. So I have a great deal of affection for those people. But the next time, if you decide that you want to be a local and seasonal eater, the next time that the sweet corn is a week late or the strawberries are awesome or the onions are small, just remember it had something to do with the weather three months ago. We move on, but a part of us stays. Hill country, daytime sunshine, nighttime moonshine. Hill country, take me back in time. And that concludes our episode for today of Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land. We want to thank our generous sponsors. We've had support from the Werner Ellithorpe Fund from the Oregon Community Foundation and the Calio Levine Fund. We had technical assistance today from Rick Brewer. And we welcome any assistance, any support that you might give us by clicking that red donate button on our website www.agarts.org A-G-A-R-T-S Also, like us, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time. Nighttime moonshine Hill country Take me back in time Hill country